It's time for this week's episode of History's Hook with your host, Tom Price. Take it away, Tom. Hello, and welcome to History's Hook, where I guarantee that we'll get you hooked on history. I'm your host, Tom Price. Each week on History's Hook, we'll be bringing you interesting and informative stories from the past in an effort to connect the history in our own backyard to the big events that compose national and world history. We'll explore a new topic every week and bring in experts and eyewitnesses to the events and places we'll be talking about. This is not your high school history class. We're going to make history fun and compelling. We're going to get you hooked. Today, I am joined in the studio by my co-host, Dr. Barry Gidcombe, professor of history at Columbia State Community College. Hello, Barry. Good morning, Tom. Together, we are honored to have with us Mr. Cecil Whiteside and his son, Jeff, Mr. Whiteside is 100 years young and a Navy veteran of World War II. His son Jeff has spent the last several years writing his father's biography. He recently self-published a book on his father's military experiences in the war, which will be the main topic of our program today. Mr. and Mr. Whiteside, welcome to History's Hook. Thank you. Mr. Cecil, as we don't often get to speak to a person whose age number contains three digits, uh, as you think back over your life, what advice would you give to a young person just starting out? Well, I don't know whether I'm eligible to give advice or not, but uh, to live a good, wholesome life is about the best thing, I can tell you. I, I think that's a, a absolutely admirable. You're from Hampshire, Tennessee, and everybody that I've ever met from Hampshire, Tennessee— are good, wholesome folks. Uh, I think you're the epitome of that. Um, you were born on March 17th, 1922 in Hampshire. Uh, you're a child of the Depression. Uh, what did your parents do, and what was Hampshire like in the 1920s and 30s? Well, up until 1929, life was pretty good. Then the banks started going bursted. I'd been in school a year when that happened. And it uh, it was a new school, and the first school bus that I know of that run. Before that, they had to walk to school. And uh, you had one suit of clothes you wore to school, come in, changed clothes, and went and milked, got up the cows and carried in store wood. There wasn't any electricity at that time. It didn't come along till 37. Where did you go to school? Stevens. Stevens School. Can you describe it? How many rooms in that school? There was uh, five classrooms on office. Well, one of the classrooms was actually our dorm. Okay. Two, uh, teacher had two grades. And uh, So that school, was it just an elementary school? How, how many grades did it cover? Went through the 10th grade. Went through the 10th grade. And then it burned in uh, December of, of uh, 36, and they rebuilt it back and went dropped it to an 8th grade school. Okay. We finished up at Hampshire High School. What did your parents do for a living? Do what? What did your parents do for a living? Your mom and dad, what did they do? They farmed. Women back then, that all they could do at home without another job. Had the washing and ironing with no uh, washing machines at that time. Done out in the backyard with a black 
pot to boil the clothes in, scrub board, <laughs> that kind of thing. That's amazing. Did you have siblings, brothers and sisters? I had uh, four, uh, six of us, just two younger than I, and I was the fourth one. Um, so your dad was a farmer. What kind of farming did he do? Just like most people, uh, different from farming now, you had uh, all kind of crops, wheat, corn, generally what they call a three-year rotation, hay, corn, and wheat, and back. And uh, my daddy and his brother also had a steam engine and a wheat thrasher that they thrashed wheat for the public and all the grain. Okay, so he was doing it not just for your farm, but for other folks in the community. Was it unusual to have a steam engine and a thrasher? Well, there was few, but everybody couldn't own one. They generally start thrashing at the Parks Farm and Cross Bridges. and They run independent. They carried their own cook and everything. They slept there. Old independent, they furnished it all. All you done was haul the grain in there to the start. Interesting. Did you use mules on the farm? We didn't have a tractor till '54, and still had our mules. Is that right? Yeah. Wow. How many mules did you have? We just had uh, two mules and a broodmare that we put in for three when you need third one. Wow. It also raised you a colt for the coming year. That's amazing. Uh, Jeff, you mentioned in the book a story about uh, bees, raising bees, which is kind of a going concern now. Lots of folks in this area uh, have have bees, but you had bees on uh, well, on your farm. Almost every farm had bees. And uh, you had, uh, they'd swarm, and you'd catch them and put them in another hive, and then you had an extra hive. How'd you catch them? They just swarm. You'd uh, take something like a large stand, nail it on a pole, jar them off in it, and take them, pour them out in front of the hive. And if the queen went in, well, the rest of them would. Uh, there's a story in the book that you you covered them in flour, and you could follow them then. That was wild bees. Okay. And you'd see them... Uh, they would come to get water at a spring, and if you'd put the flower on them, you could see them when fly off, and bees flew in a straight line once they got started. You could follow them to the hive, to the tree, rather, that they were in. I, I was going to swear to you that was a tall tale, that there's no way you were flowering bees out there to follow them back. Yeah. You did that. Yeah, that's incredible. The, that's a thing I think that's lost in modern times so much are stories like that. You know so much about the natural world because you grew up in it. Your livelihood was based on agriculture uh, that so many people are are removed from today. They don't under, understand the operations of farming, the operations of agriculture, and just things like that. The stories of the animals and how they how how you interacted with them and figured out the best way to produce from animals. Agriculture was a little cruder back then. We had a one-horse corn planter, plant one row at a time. 
And how many acres about was your dad farming? Well, it was about, uh, I guess, close to 75 agricultural acres. One row to die. farm had more timber on it. Okay. That. Speaking of the natural sciences of, uh, of farming, I, uh, uh, I've been teaching history for 40 years, and I was reading your memoir about the Great Depression era and growing up, and, and there were things that I had never heard of before, and I, I was fascinated. I guess this would be more on the, uh, the mechanical end of farming, but I, uh, specifically being uh, blacksmith work, but I had never heard of this firing an anvil v- before. And I thought that was a great story. And, and you had some, some neighbors that would do this on Christmas Day. Yes. And uh, you want to tell us a little well, bit about Christmas that? Night, actually. Christmas night. Well, they'd take one anvil, turn it upside down, fill it with black powder, and put a fuse on it and set another anvil on it and fire it off. How far would it go? I don't know. I never, we could hear it. I never did see it. <laughs> That seems like they dangerous were, fun. <laughs> the ones that done that, they had a sawmill and a blacksmith shop and a gristmill and all. They had all that kind of stuff. Actually, they were right over the hill from us. It, it was about a half a mile away that they could hear this going really? on. <laughs> <laughs> they later on got to tying uh, dynamite to the limb of a tree and setting it off to make a big noise on Christmas night. <laughs> that would do it. Was dynamite available readily at that oh, time? Yeah. Is that right? Yeah, you. a lot of things was available then that wasn't now. <laughs> <laughs> well, uh, what Mr. Cecil, uh, one of the things he went on to say about this uh, firing an anvil, and I, I didn't realize this, but, I mean, there was a, uh, there was a purpose for this, that this was the way you could, make sure an anvil was, was safe, that if, if it didn't shatter, well, then it was safe to use. Well, that is something Jeff got up on. <laughs> Interesting. Uh, you worked pretty hard on the farm at home, but you had a series of regular jobs as well. I think you mentioned you worked at Oscar Hardison's Grocery. Do you remember how much you made? How much did you make working for the grocery? You are delivering groceries. That was about a year after I got out of finished high school. I got uh, $12 and a half a week, and I boarded in Ms. Underwood's on 9th Street for $5 and a half a week. That's a lot of your paycheck going towards living you expenses. got 21 meals and sleeping. Is that right? Wow. So you could live on $12.50 a week. I saved money on it. Unbelievable. He worked most of the time. He worked six days a week. <laughs> Late I generally night. got off work about 11, 12 o'clock on Saturday night. Did uh, do you have any good stories about delivering groceries? I know you do. <laughs> well, you never knew what you was gonna find when you run in. You didn't knock. You both had both hands full. You figured they knew you was coming, and so you just burst on in the kitchen, put out the groceries, and left. Sometimes I don't know why they'd lock the doors. I had a pick. I'd pick the lock. Go on in, leave the groceries, and lock the door when I come out. It was a screen door, what I'm talking about, the latch on it. And you run into some interesting things. Back then, at a tournament time, various people would keep out of town 
players. Transportation wasn't like it is now. And one morning early, a lady called her order in, and as the Mr. Oscar got it up, we put it in the basket, and he said, run that on up before we get busy today. I did. One of the latest girls was out in the yard taking the laundry off. I, I poked her and run on in. There was four or five girls in pajamas and cowan, various things. <laughs> they sort of squalled about like a wild cat. <laughs> this other girl, hearing them run in to see what the noise was about, didn't have a rag on. <laughs> she was a blonde, but was rather red when she left. <laughs> That's just one of many things that happened. The, the grocery business was an interesting one. Uh, that, that's amazing. Uh, so you graduated from high school. You were working at the grocery store. December 7th, 1941 is one of those rare days in history, one of those terrible days that everyone then living remembered distinctly. They remembered where they were. Where were you on December 7th, 1941? Very well. There was two of my friends and I were going to Alabama to ride in an airplane. Next day, they was given you could take a ride. And his girlfriend lived uh, in, down there, and he would go down every weekend and bring her back. She would worked at uh, Butler's Mill here, and she'd go home on weekends, and he'd go down and pick. So we was going to do that with the. All of it. And we went. I got off work at eleven o'clock at night, and we drove down, spent the night, slept in late, cause we was going one going ride till afternoon. And we went to the airport. Asked us where we thought we was going. We told him. He said we can't do. Everything's closed down. Mm-hmm. So we had told us about the bombing Pearl Harbor. That's how you found out was from the guards at the gate not letting you. Then go we in. turn around and come back home. <laughs> What did you think about at that point in time? Did you have any idea that this is going to be, that you were probably going to wind up in this well, world? Well, I didn't know why. The draft one until you was 20 years old at the time, and I was still 19. And when March come around, I registered. And then uh, two of us went up to join the Marines. Line was so long we just couldn't get in, and that day we didn't want to come back, so we got over the Navy line. That's what determined it. The day was getting long. Yeah. The line for the Marines was still long, so they you thought, well, the Navy, we'll be able to go home tonight and sleep. And they gave us three weeks to give notice to our employers and come back, and we went back in three weeks. That was in Nashville that you Nashville. enlisted in Nashville? Yeah. And that's how you wound up in the Navy. Had you stayed in line with the Marines, who knows what might have happened. I don't know. Small decisions like that can change the course <laughs> of a life. That, that's incredible. Um, three weeks later, as you said, you were sworn into the Navy, put on a training union station in Nashville, and headed where? We went to San Diego, California. Only time I got off the train was ate breakfast in El Paso, Texas. You were on the train the entire time, all the way to El Paso, Texas. 
Yeah. How how long did it take to get from Nashville to? It was two days, about two days. Two days. How many people were on that? Was that a troop train or was that just a? Yes. Just a, it was specifically. It was for, all recruits. Yep. We picked up two extra Pullman cars in Dallas, Texas, and went to the Navy. Had you ever left the state of Tennessee? Well, you said you'd been to Alabama. How much traveling had you done prior to that? How much of the world had you seen prior to getting on that train? Very little. Uh, I don't guess I'd ever been out of Tennessee. I don't know. Yeah. Um, So you you went to San Diego, uh, and what was Navy training like for a 19-year-old kid? Well, I never went through it but once. I don't know. But uh, you had... uh, Mostly taking shots. Well, the first day was getting your uniforms and finding a place to sleep. They stenciled all your clothes. That took quite a while. And you had physicals and shots. And pretty busy day. That was on Saturday. Sunday they got us up early and said, they're going to give us a little example of what we get. So they marched us all day indoctrinating you pretty quickly into the military life. Was it hard for you? I, I would think at, a, at 19 years old and working as much as you had, no, that maybe it, the physical training wasn't, it wasn't too difficult. Hard. It wasn't physical part wasn't hard on me like it was on some cities. Boys that didn't have it. And uh, we'd get the shots money every day. You had some difficulties with that. I'm going to come back to that in just a second. But before we continue, I wanted to ask Jeff, we often hear from children of World War II veterans that their fathers rarely talked about their war experiences, in many cases flat out refused. When did you get interested in your father's military experiences and what prompted you to want to document them? Well, he told stories all all of our lives, occasionally, but uh, about a uh, little over two years ago, um, um Veterans Day, we took him and my mother, my wife and I, to uh, took him down to the World War II Museum in New Orleans. And as he was walking through, he was telling a lot of the stories, some I'd heard before, some I hadn't. And uh, that was when I decided that I needed to get these things wrote down. It's brilliant and incredibly important as well, uh, running in archives or being a history professor. It's stories like these that really flesh out a time period for us. These are the stories that you don't find in the in most history books. So th- thank you for being aware of the importance of this and, and documenting this. We need to take our first break. You're listening to History's Hook. We'll be right back. Don't go away. History's Hook with your host, Tom Price, will be right back after this brief commercial break. At Columbia Chrysler Dodge Jeep Ram, you can count on us. We know that Jeep owners are one of a kind. Choose from our huge inventory or build your own one-of-a-kind Jeep from the ground up. Stop by today and one of our product specialists will help you customize the Jeep you want. Wrangler, Grand Cherokee, and Grand Wagoneer in the perfect color, gotta have them options, powertrain, and more. And now, take advantage of the Jeep Wave program. More free maintenance at no additional cost. Columbia Chrysler Dodge Jeep Ram, you can count on us. Online at ColumbiaCDJR.com. Does it really matter where you get your jewelry repaired? Of course it does. When you take your jewelry to a hometown jeweler, you build trust. Hello, I'm Rick Tillis, owner of Tillis Jewelry in downtown Columbia. 
I started as a goldsmith 30 years ago, and because of my experience and our staff, we ensure all repairs are completed to the highest of expectations. So yes, it does matter who repairs your jewelry. And if you are in need of any type of jewelry repair, please stop by for a free consultation. American Standard Heating and Air Conditioning is built to a higher standard, so you can focus on the problems in your life that actually matter, like the stair that only creaks when everyone else in the house is asleep. American Standard Heating and Air Conditioning, built to a higher standard. Call Davis Heating and Cooling at 931-388-2090 for all your home comfort needs. Davis Heating and Cooling is your local American Standard dealer and proudly serves the Murray County area. Find Davis Heating and Cooling online and on Facebook or call today, 388-2090. Are you thinking about a new fence? Maybe you need a pole barn. Then you should give Sands Fence Company a call. That's 931-309-1644. Will Sands has built his business based on the principles of honesty, quality, and integrity. Sands Fence Company has been in business for over 20 years, providing the community with farm, residential, and commercial fencing, as well as pole barns and buildings. Call today for a free estimate. Sands Fence Company, 931-309-1644. 931-309-1644. For 40 years, Beck Dental Care has been the personalized and comfortable option for the health of your smile. The caring staff maintains a high level of safety protocols and attention to detail. Advanced technology provides your choice of sedation and the best of dental implant solutions to restore complete oral health. Open until 6 p.m. two nights a week. Call us at 931-388-8452 or visit us online at beckdentalcare.com. History's Hook with your host, Tom Price, is back. Take it away, Tom. Welcome back to History's Hook. I'm Tom Price. I'm joined in the studio today by my co-host, Dr. Barry Gidcombe, uh, and uh, Mr. Cecil Whiteside, 100 years old, uh, a World War II Navy veteran, uh, and his son, Jeff, who has spent the last couple of years documenting his father's pretty incredible life. Mr. Cecil Mule Day is coming right up here. Uh, Columbia, Tennessee is the mule capital of the world. You have practical experience with mules, using them on the farm, as you said, when you were growing up. Um, Talk a little bit about the importance of the mule to Columbia, Tennessee. I understand you come to every Mule Day, except for one, uh, through all of these years uh, that they've had. But talk a little bit about the mule and what it means to Columbia and, and to you in your life. Well, before Mule Day Parade started, every first Monday in Columbia was Mule Day. There were different times. It was for selling colts on one time. Broke mules would be another Monday. Generally, first Monday in April one year, went to get broke mules to make a crop with. And uh, traders would... uh, meet around the courthouse, and uh, generally the farm hand was long to hold the mules that was for sale while the man that owned them went around hunting buyers and people was examining them to see how sound they were and harness marks and first one thing and another. But every day, every Monday, first Monday, was Mule Day in Columbia. I've seen photographs of it, and there would be hundreds of people around the square, yeah. hundreds of mules 
uh, being looked at and, and being traded. Is Columbia unique in that regard, or was this something that was happening elsewhere? Did they have first Monday mule days in Nashville or other, other towns? Not that I know of. Just Columbia. They would uh, bring mules in from uh, Missouri with carloads. You know, they was a big producer of work mules. Um, I, we have a pretty good understanding of the importance of the mule in this area. I know, and we've talked about this before, I think, that during World War I, before the United States got into the war, as early as 1914, the British government sent agents to Columbia, Tennessee, to buy mules for the war effort. From 1914 to about 1917, over 20,000 mules were shipped out of Murray County for yeah. the war effort. Yeah. Big mule collection place. There was mule uh, mule barn down on uh, South Main Street, where they saw, uh, kept mules for sale. Not too far from the railroad station. What? Not too far from the railroad station, if I remember correctly. I'm not sure right where. Okay. Where it was. Um, let's get back to your time in the Navy. So you were in San Diego when we left off. You were going through your your basic training there. Um, what was your job? In the Navy, where did you wind up after training? It was just basic training to get you physically fit and get your shots and and get you accustomed to the, that type of living. You got pretty sick. I had a tetanus shot that the needle evidently was dirty, set up cellulitis in my arm. That was the third week. I went to the sick bay on Friday. They put a heat lamp. Well, the doctors was all off for the weekend. They put a heat lamp on it instead of a cold compress. And by Monday morning, when the doctors come back, it was really bad. They took me to the hospital and operated. I was in the hospital from the third uh, week in August till the first week in uh, November. Wow. Went from there to gunner school. So that was your job in the Navy was to be... A gunner's mate. Gunner's mate. Um, what kind of ship were you assigned to? I was on, first ship was a Liberty ship, one of Kaiser's wonders. I believe from the time a keel is laid till it is loaded was about a month's time. That's unbelievable. So the the talk to me about the within the Navy structure, what was the organization that you were part of? Within the United States Navy, you were in... What it was called the Armed Guard. The Armed Guard. It was gunners on merchant ships to protect against uh, submarines and aircraft. So as the war is ramping up, they're taking uh, cargo ships primarily, and they're arming them. They're putting putting guns on board, and they're assigning... So the ships are actually sailed by the merchant marines, if yeah. I remember correctly, but they would assign Navy personnel... Uh, to man the guns, and that's what your job was. On the average, well, I guess the minimum amount of men on a ship was 12 uh, Navy gunners, two signalmen, and a lieutenant. You stood uh, two watches a day, two eight-hour watches. Two eight-hour watches. Wow. If you had four to eight in the morning, you had four to eight at night, in other words. Right. Um, 
Jeff, I think in in your book, you mentioned that about 144,900 men served in the Navy Armed Guard on 6,236 ships during the war. More than 700 ships under guard were sunk during the war. Over 1,800 armed Navy Armed Guardsmen were killed or lost during the war. Uh, So this is – most people think that Navy men wind up on on warships, uh, of course, and and that's the dangerous – uh, side of the military, but what you were doing was pretty harrowing as well. It pretty, got pretty rough sometimes. <laughs> um, so you mentioned how many crew members were on board a typical Liberty ship. How big is a Liberty ship, and what kinds of cargo were you carrying? A Liberty ship was 450 feet long and 50 feet wide. It carried a maximum of 10,000 ton, and... Uh, it, we carried everything from canteen supplies on the first ship, brought back uh, cow hides from Australia, turned around and carried uh, part of it was half troop and part of their supplies, whatever they needed. Brought back wool from Australia, came through the Panama Canal up to Philadelphia. So you're, you're carrying a lot of different commodities over time. Oh, yeah. It's your job to protect them. What was the greatest threat to a Liberty ship? Torpedoes, I guess. So having guns on board these ships, you're looking for submarines that are on the surface? We had a 4-inch 50 on the stern, 3-inch 50 on the bow, and six twenty millimeters fired aircraft. Did you have a specific role on a gun, or did you do them all over the course of your no, service? You, well, at different times I did, but for a trip, you have, you were assigned either a pointer, a loader, a hot shell man, or whatever. Huh. Those uh, big guns, you had to catch shells when you throw them out, to put on asbestos gloves, and catch them and throw them out of the way so you wouldn't stumble over them. You're catching the hot casings coming out of yeah. the gun after it's fired with asbestos gloves on, and you're... Yeah. What are, you, what are you doing with them once you catch them? Throw them out of the way. Just so out of the way. Stumble on them. Not overboard. You're, are you, no, are you, are you reusing them. those? They didn't want them to go over the board. They wanted to save them. Save them, right. Till the war was over, and then we throw them all over the board live and otherwise. <laughs> right, right. Uh, one of the things that amazed me, Jeff, in, in the book, you mentioned the the ages of crew members, especially early in the war, uh, for these merchant marines sometimes who are on board. What were, what were the ages of the crew members uh, that were on board your ship? On that first ship, the captain, third mate, and the first mate was all up in the 80s. In their 80s. <laughs> and the captain had been on a schooner that didn't have a sailing ship that hauled a Lumber from Oregon to Australia. That's amazing. Uh, where was the ship sent on your first deployment? You left San Diego. Where was your where Where did you head? Where did the ship go? Where did I on go? your first trip? Well, first trip. Well, from San Diego, we went up to San Francisco to Treasure Island, and then uh, caught ship there. Went to Aust- uh, New Zealand. Unloaded, reloaded, went up to New Caledonia, and unloaded, went to 
Sydney, Australia, loaded up with cowhides, went back to uh, San Francisco, Alameda, rather, California, then went over to Oakland, loaded up again. <laughs> That's incredible. How long did it take to traverse the Pacific Ocean? How long of a trip was it to Australia on that first trip? The first trip was 31 days to New Zealand. A month to New Zealand. What was the name of the ship? Uh, uh, the Morris Shepherd. Morris Shepherd. Um, describe a typical day for you as this uh, new sailor. Uh, you're, an, you're an inlander. You didn't have any time on the water as a kid. Uh, you find yourself in the Navy. What's a typical day like for you? On a ship? Yes. You were assigned, uh, as I said, of either four to eight watch, uh, uh, 12 to four or whatever. And you've done that twice a day. You got up and, of course, eat breakfast in or your meals in the off time. What was the food like? Huh. What was the food like? The best you can have. They could get till you run out. Which, which you would? You would run out of food? Well, sometime it got pretty low. One time, weevils got in the, the dry stores. You picked them out for a while and then just went off. <laughs> so, but the food was good. Yeah, it was extra good when they could get it. Huh. Coming back from Philippines was... Water buffalo wasn't too good. France mule meat wasn't too good. <laughs> Horse meat rather instead of mule. <laughs> your your second tour was back across the Pacific to Australia, uh, this time to Brisbane, I think. Uh, you weren't part of a convoy. This was kind of surprising to me. I would have assumed that most of the cargo ships were escorted by warships, but you were not. On the second trip, you're out there all all by yourself. Either one of them, we didn't till we got to Brisbane, and from there down to Sydney. Well, we stopped at Newcastle, and where a torpedo got one of the ships. In your convoy. Yeah. Wow. Uh, I was on the stern, standing watch, and uh, a cone boy named Cone was from Virgil Cone from. Georgia was on the bow. We was talking over the intercom. All of a sudden, it sounded like he swallowed his tongue or something. I said, what's wrong? And about that time, it hit the next ship over. Wow. How far away was that ship, would you say? They they were generally 1,000 feet apart in a convoy. Each way was 1,000 feet. The reason his friend got so upset, though, is it barely missed their ship. He saw the torpedo in the water go barely miss their ship and then hit the next one in the convoy. Wow. What time? Was that day or night? That's in the daytime. In the daytime. Uh, so the what happened to the ship that got hit? We kept going. You didn't stop for anything. But I think they pulled it into Newcastle. So they were able to continue under their own steam? Yeah. Wow. Do you know if there are any casualties in that? Incident? I think there was uh, the guy in the crow's nest got killed, blowed out. Wow. Landed on the deck, killed him. What did that feel like to you? Did the war get real uh, at that point in time? Had you felt like you were in danger prior to that? No. Regardless how 
bad it gets, there's always something funny happen. And while we was all at general quarters, a bird they call a hell diver lit out there. And the guys on the next ship they thought it was a periscope, they didn't see it light and they shot <laughs> got shooting at it. And he'd get up butt in the air and a uh, shell would go off and suck it back. <laughs> <laughs> so the bird couldn't Until get away. they realized what they were shooting at and it finally took on off. That's a, that's a common story in the military. Green soldiers are a little jumpy. Uh. <laughs> well, I don't know how green it was, but they put five shells out at it pretty thick. <laughs> So uh, after that incident happened, you're you're paying pretty close attention, I would imagine. No, we got a big laugh out of it anyway. <laughs> but uh, evidently, a PBY sunk the submarine. Oh, is that right? He come out and was looking and dropped his depth charges and come by and waved his arm wings like everything's all right. That's incredible. Do you remember how many ships were in that convoy? Was it a large convoy? No, it was 12. 12 ships. Uh, plus escorts. Which would have been destroyers, or destroyer escorts? I don't know whether it's uh, destroyers or DCs. Uh, that smaller ship. Right, right. Um, it, it was interesting. Uh, you mentioned in the book, too, you picked up bales of wool. Uh, and this is an amazing story. If the wool got wet, it could swell, which is a problematic. What would happen if the wool started to swell? What happens if the wool got wet? It's brought the ship. It would break the ship. That's incredible to me. So they'd take three bales of regular wool and had a, I don't know what kind of bale it was on the, and put them three into bales. I don't know. It was really tight. But you had wind scoops to keep uh, holes from getting too hot with cargo. It would blow down in. And you didn't, you'd, they'd turn them if it was raining to where rain wouldn't go down. They wanted them on the side instead of on the top. Right. So they would put these bales, these bales of wool in the cargo hold of the ship, yeah, and try to try your best to keep it dry. Right. And if they didn't, the wool would expand enough that it would actually damage damage the ship. That's a, yeah. that's absolutely incredible to me. In the summer of 1943, you crossed the Pacific, heading east, and uh, traversed into the Atlantic by way of the Panama Canal. What was that like uh, crossing the Panama Canal? They made everybody get out on deck, put uh, guards on. You weren't allowed back in your forecastle or nowhere till you got through the canal. As security? Security. They didn't want to take any chance of anybody putting an explosive in the canal. Wow. After delivering the wool in Baltimore, you got some leave and came home. What was it like to come home after that experience? Pretty worldly compared to when you left. What was it like coming home that first time? Well, showed my ignorance the right smart. We caught a train, went into Ohio, Cincinnati. Missed Pan-American coming home. 
I thought ketchup next to them. Well, it was a local. When I got to Nashville the next day, Pan American had already been in New Orleans back to Chicago. <laughs> Cincinnati was going back in Nashville. <laughs> it was a long trip home. <laughs> so the next time I paid a, uh, a guy get me on the road, on. Yeah. At the time, give me a dollar to get me a seat. What was it like that homecoming, seeing your parents and your siblings again? Well, you was afraid to ask about somebody, afraid they died, because we didn't get any communication. We didn't get any mail overseas or nowhere like that. And then over six months, I hadn't heard from nobody. I was afraid to ask about somebody, afraid they died while I was gone. Did you lose any friends? Yeah. You mean in service? Mm-hmm. Two of my classmates, the guy I worked with in the grocery store, first cousin, and a guy in the next grade above me in school. Mm. Did your brother serve? No, he farmed. He had a deferment to farm? Well, he won physically, uh, passed physical to okay. go in. But a lot of them got out on uh, farming anyway. Right. Uh, hugely important to the to the war effort, um, continuing with agricultural operations. We need to say, take our second break. Uh, when we come back, we'll continue our story with Mr. Cecil Whiteside talking about his experiences in World War II. You're listening to History's Hook. Don't go away. History's Hook with your host, Tom Price, will be right back after this brief commercial break. I'm Robert Rogers at Parks Motor Sales Buick GMC. Parks Motor Sales was founded by my granddad, Bobby Parks, and my great-granddad, Julian Mays, in 1958. We've been family-owned the whole time, and being family-owned, locally-owned, means you get to get your next vehicle or your existing vehicle serviced by the same people who stand in the grocery line with you, drop their kids off at the same school you do, and smile and are happy to see you when they do. So come see us at Parks Motor Sales in Columbia, Tennessee, on 919 Nashville Highway or parksmotorsales.com. I'm Barbara Lincoln with Holland's Pharmacy. We have advertised with WKRM and WKOM for the past several years and found it to be very successful. I highly recommend advertising with them if you have a local business like ours. We're located at 1608 Hatcher Lane here in Columbia. We're open Monday through Friday from 8 to 6 and Saturdays from 8 to 2. Stop by Holland's for all your prescription needs where we have fast, friendly, courteous service. We custom fit support hoods for you also. Thanks for supporting Holland's and WKRM and WKOM. Hi, this is Steve, the Garbage Man. Our company, The Garbage Man Incorporated, has been advertising on WKOM and WKRM for years now, and as a result, our company has really grown. Now we're looking for young, healthy, hardworking people to grow with us. We are in need of drivers and helpers. We pay serious money. So if you like outside work and want to work for a great local company, call me at 931-540-0919 and let's talk. 
Hey folks, this is Chandler Anderson from the Right Care Walk-In Clinics. Hey guys, we're open 11 to 11, seven days a week so that you don't have to go wait at the emergency room when you have an urgent care need. Our providers are all emergency medicine experienced or critical care experienced, and we're there to take care of you so that you're not caught at the emergency department for hours and hours on end. Folks, seven days a week, right in front of Walmart, 11 a.m. to 11 p.m., we stay late so you don't have to wait at the ER. Serving Murray County for 40 years, the Jewelers Bench has provided the highest quality jewelry at the very best prices. They work hard to make their customers happy, and it's paid off. Their customers keep going back. Quality jewelry, custom vintage and estate pieces, and professional jewelry and watch repairs. We offer jewelry loans up to $4,500, and we will buy your gold. The Jewelers Bench, still here, still the same. 808 Trotwood Avenue, Columbia. Terrence here at Shepherd Lumberyard, where we value you, the customer. We've been serving Columbia and surrounding areas since 1946. We're located in our new location at 103 Cemetery Avenue. Anything that has to do with building or remodeling, we're here to assist. When you shop local, you help shape the community. We are locally owned, family owned, and veteran owned. And by the way, God is in charge. You can reach us at 931-388-3612. And our website is shepherdlumberyard at yahoo.com. History's Hook with your host, Tom Price, is back. Take it away, Tom. Welcome back to History's Hook. We have the great honor today to speak with Mr. Cecil Whiteside, a World War II Navy vet. Um, He served in the Navy Armed Guard from 1942 to 1945. Um, Mr. Whiteside, your second duty, you were assigned to the George W. Barnes. What type of ship was it? Was it different from your previous ship? It was a tanker. A tanker. We hauled fuel to Cuba, brought molasses back to the DuPont. What What did they use the molasses for? Make alcohol. Alcohol? It was 90% alcohol. Huh. To be used how? Not for drinking? They could put it in the, up in Russia, a lot of it to use to put in there. Radiators, the first equipment. For use in mechanics primarily. Yeah, it's used like antifreeze. Right, yeah. right, for antifreeze. Uh, so describe, uh, this, this is amazing to me, these didn't come in barrels. The, the molasses was just housed in the cargo hole of the tanker. cargo hole. And after, you'd have to heat it two or three days before you got in. And then uh, when you got pumped out, you went back out to sea. You had what they call a Butterworth uh, head on the end of a hose that you drop down in there with live steam, and it washed the tanks out, and you could put the fuel in them. And when done the same thing before you put molasses back in. Right. So you would you would haul a load of molasses from Cuba to uh, Texas and New Orleans sometimes? Well, it went to New Orleans and it went to DuPont up in New Jersey. In New Jersey. And then and they'd clean clean out the whole, using that system, that Butterworth system that you mentioned, and then they yeah. you, you might pick up a load of uh, fuel or oil? Well, we'd come out of uh, New Orleans and go over to Texas 
pick up fuel and then take it. Made nine different ports in Cuba. Nine different ports in Cuba alone. That's amazing. Venezuela and Aruba. So you're all over the Caribbean then Yeah. during that time. There's probably worse places to be. <laughs> <laughs> well, it was pretty hot. <laughs> um, you attended the Sugar Bowl on New Year's Day 1944. How did that come about? We just happened to come in off of one of our trips. And, of course, it had been in the hundred, around the hundred where we'd been. We, like, froze when it was just 44. <laughs> but uh, the ball game was good, but I remember the bunch of waves getting in a fight. <laughs> waves were uh, female enlisted Navy women. Yeah. <laughs> they got into a fist fight? Yeah, they little... Alcohol went down, I imagine. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, pretty pretty interesting. I I got to meet your lovely wife, Letha Lou, uh, but some photographs of you during your leave time look like you got pretty chummy with a girl named Evelyn. Uh, in fact, she's wearing your uniform in the photograph that I saw. Uh, there are a number of other photographs where you're you're pretty close to some ladies too. I, I have a feeling uh, you had a way with with the ladies, Mister Whiteside. Well, I enjoyed them. <laughs> <laughs> you mentioned there was a, a Joe Nicolosi. Does that ring a bell? Yeah. And then dated two other girls named Josephine. Yeah. Made it easy. You could just call them all Joe. Yeah. <laughs> one in New York, one in Oakland. One in New Orleans. I love it. It's wartime. You got to make the best of the time you have, right? <laughs> <laughs> we were in Puerto Rico few times, several times, but we weren't there for any length of time. Sure. We was in Texas City, Texas. They loaded a full load of uh, fuel in 12 hours. Wow. How long would it normally take? How, how long did it normally take to... Well, according to what kind of facilities they had to load. But they put a nine-inch hole in it, a uh, hose in each hole. In Texas, it is. And you just see the ship going there. <laughs> yeah, right. Yeah, I didn't think about that. That uh, you know, the the weight that the ship would carry would really change the how it would how it would sail, how it settled in the water. Yeah, when you was empty, you actually pump water in the holes to give you balance. Huh. Keep from being top heavy. Right. You transfer to the SS only. Only, O-L-N-E-Y. Only, okay. And uh, you were put in charge of the gunners. So how old were you at that point in time? How old was I? 22, I guess. 22 years old. And considered the old, one of the old men on, one of the old That's veterans. That's what you that. called. You were called the old man. <laughs> what, was, uh, what, was the, what was the Olney's ship's armament? What did they have the for guns? The same as uh, all of them. Gun on the front, gun on the rear, and then uh, an aircraft gun. Well, it had a five-inch on the stern to four. You experienced a mid-sea collision on the Olney. Yes, that's uh, right off Charleston, South Carolina. Two con- we was in a convoy going north, and the convoy was going south. They blowed the whistles to give a 45-degree turn, 
ship out of uh, Charleston was caught between them. Of course, she was running blackout, and it was a real dark night, and so he just got caught. It happened to be empty, and we was loaded, and we pushed it sideways. And the ship was going, propeller was going full speed astern, but you just don't stop one of those big ships. Right, right. Was your ship damaged? It bent the keel front end. But you were able to continue? Yeah. Yeah. Um, you reported next to the SF, uh, SS Morris Shepard. Uh, the ship was loaded with supplies for Patton's army, who was then fighting the Battle of the Bulge, which included 900 tons of ammo and locomotives. You actually shipped trains to Europe. Had one on each side of the, on the front, on the bow. That's, a, I mean, that's amazing. So One on each side. You had to balance a load on a ship. Uh, that was third mate's job to see that... Uh, Loading was balanced, so ships are on even keel. So they're bringing things like locomotives to Europe to sort of build up that infrastructure, I suppose. They was on deck. Yeah. They weren't going the hole. Right, right. But they were taking them to Europe to build up the infrastructure, re- rebuild infrastructure yeah, and transportation. They didn't tell us nothing. About <laughs> You're just doing your job. It just happens, if you could see it, you knew about it. Otherwise, that's all. Well, on the Shepherd, you were promoted to gunner's mate first class, but you declined it. Why would you decline a promotion? I'd have had to went in the regular fleet instead of changed completely out of where I was. Okay. Interesting. Uh, in July of 1945, you transferred to yet another Liberty ship, the SS Amy Lowell, with a mission of returning pilots to the States. We was uh, we got off the one in the Philippines, stayed there on base three weeks on Samar, caught this same in went down to New Guinea and picked up some uh, sailor, uh, some airplane pilots that was due for leave, bringing them back to the states. We got. Uh, Right off of Hawaii was when we got news that uh, dropped the bomb. Hmm. Got to turn the lights on on the ship for the first time. Is that right? Huh. You were discharged December 11th, 1945. Three years, four months, and 15 days from your enlistment. 77 years have gone by since you left the Navy. You saw a good piece of the world. Um, how did it change you? How did your three-plus years in the Navy change you when you came back to Hampshire, Tennessee? I don't know. You was about ready to settle down a little. But uh, later on, my wife and I took traveling again. You did? Have you ever been back to any of the places you visited during the war? Uh, New Orleans is about the only place. Uh Uh-huh. You did go back through the canal, too. I went to the Bahamas, huh? You did go back through the Panama Canal, too. Oh, time. yeah, I'd been through it three times. But, uh, we've traveled right smart. That's, that's amazing. Uh, unfortunately, we're out of time once again. Uh, I end the show with this quote from General George S. Patton. It is foolish and wrong to mourn the men who died. Rather, we should thank God that such men lived. 
We're thankful for you, Mr. Whiteside, uh, for your sacrifices and for your service to our country. Uh, thank you to Jeff for taking on the task of documenting your father's remarkable life and sharing it with with us and the world. Uh, thank you both for spending an hour with us on History's Hook. Thank you finally to our listeners. Join us again next week as we connect the history in your backyard to the world on another edition of History's Hook. Thank you for joining us for this week's edition of History's Hook with your host, Tom Price. We hope you enjoyed today's show. Be sure to join us every Tuesday at 4 p.m. right here on WKOM 101.7 for a journey through time. This is Dr. Dominic Mancini from the Dr. Gill Center. Have you been injured in a car accident? Are you still in pain? Untreated whiplash injuries to the spine may lead to future conditions, such as neck pain, low back pain, and headaches. The doctors at the Dr. Gill Center specialize in detecting and treating these conditions before they get worse. Our accident consultations are free. Call me, painfree.com, or call 615-551-9224. Columbia Foodland is a locally owned and operated family grocery store with a full line of dry, dairy, frozen meat and produce items. We focus on keeping the freshest hand cut meat and produce items daily with the most competitive prices in town. We offer weekly ad specials as well as in-store weekly specials throughout the store. Located at 427 West 7th Street in Columbia in the former Harris Foodland location. Columbia Foodland. We are here and ready to serve the wonderful people of Columbia and the surrounding areas. If you're on the go and looking for a convenient place to fill up and fuel up, come to Fast Stop Markets. This family-owned chain has locations in Columbia, Centerville, Dixon, Spring Hill, and Lawrenceburg with 14 total locations across Middle and West Tennessee. At Fast Stop, you can expect consistent service that's fast, friendly, and clean, and some of your favorite Southern-inspired foods. And remember, you can get anything in the drive-thru that you can get in the store. Make a stop at Fast Stop today. They're keeping you moving in Tennessee. Go to FastStopMarkets.com to learn more. Omega's Market, 1201 Woodland Drive in Columbia. Serving time, 11 to 4.30. Our mission is where everyone is somebody, and everybody is a friend that has been waiting to meet in a friendly environment with friends that care about their customers. Omega's Market has been in business for nine-plus years. We are a diamond in the rough to some of our customers. The food we serve is good and delicious, enough to make some people want to sing. Come and eat with us at Omega's Market. We promise you'll love the food. Call 931-381-7554. The King's Daughter School in Columbia, Tennessee, is hosting a hiring event with open interviews on Wednesday, April 13th from 10 a.m. to 2 p.m. Positions include full-time openings as well as part-time and PRN, perfect for college students. The school is located at 412 West 9th Street. Call 931-548-0033 or email info at tkds.org for more information. The King's Daughter School. Challenging. Empowering. Loving. Exciting things are happening at Agatha's Classical School. Here's just one of the great happenings going on right now. Folks, Jason Wadley, <laughs> local attorney here, who has for several years been the, along with Corey Ritchie, the coach of the Agatha School mock trial team. They've been state champion twice and national champion once. We like to refer to it as the highest level of intellectual combat. Um, and so these, these kids, unlike debate, everybody's heard of debate. Well, in debate, it's often a contest to see who gets the most information. In mock trial, everyone has the same information, just like a real trial. The question is how you use it. I would say that these kids at their zenith 
far exceed most trial lawyers that you and I have seen in court in terms of their skills. The team met in Franklin at the Williamson County Courthouse for the regional competition. The winner of that gets to go to state. For the first time ever in our program's history, our teams met in the final round against each other. We had two teams, Aragorn and Legolas, after Lord of the Rings. And so they met in the final round. They were both undefeated completely uh, going into that final round. So so it was, a, it was a great moment for the program system, great bond between those students. So next stop is uh, the state competition. Agathas Classical School. We start with different goals, so we produce different outcomes. Go to our website at agathasschool.com and see what makes the Agathas difference. This is Jack Cobb with Murray County Public Schools and the Big Yellow School Bus. You're listening to Front Porch Radio on 101.7 WKOM in Columbia, Tennessee. 